On the Virtual Bible Study tonight, we're going to look at various questions submitted by our listeners. We like to do this from time to time, Jacob. We often get questions emailed to us, and we kind of save them up and put them together for a program such as we're going to have tonight, in which we look at different uh, questions that have been sub- uh, listeners. Uh, tonight's questions, we've got four of them. Tonight's questions deal with uh, whether or not the Lord's Supper and baptism have to be administered in special circumstances and by certain only authorized people. Okay. We're going to talk about refugees, whether we should be accepting refugees in the United States. We're going to talk about uh, the childhood innocence and whether young children, uh, if they die young, will they go to heaven. That and is sort that of thing. fair? Is it, really, is it really a fair thing that young yeah. children who die early should go to heaven? And then we're going to follow up on some comments we made about situation ethics in a, in a recent program. All right, it's going to be a good episode. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Studies Live right after this. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 931- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and this is the virtual bible study for thursday march 13th 2017 thank you for joining us on the program tonight we're glad that you're here we look forward to hearing from you the number to call is 877-381-4567 that's a toll-free line and you will make the program better if you'll give it a call, and you can be live with us tonight, 877-381-4567. The email address to use is questions at collegeview.com, and we welcome your emails at any time, especially if you're listening to us live tonight. But if you're listening to us in the podcasted version, uh, wherever you may be listening to us, we welcome uh, your comments, questions at collegeview.com. You can use that to comment on the things you hear on the program tonight. Or you could uh, just uh, submit a question. Maybe you've got something uh, that you have a question about that has come up in your, maybe your study and your personal life. Uh, teach on this. We can help uh, with uh, what our understanding of that if you'll send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. And if you'd like to sign in the chat room, whether you're watching us on Facebook or YouTube or on our website at thevirtualbiblestudy.com, if you're watching live, you can comment with other listeners on the program tonight. Looking forward to an interesting discussion. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight good. on the Virtual Bible Study. Good to be with you as well. Josh McCord is behind the controls tonight. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Good to be Try here. Try and make us look good if you can. And uh, then uh, we'll look forward to uh, uh, questions submitted by our listeners. Yeah, a little late getting the link to our uh, to our own web page. I think it's there now. And so uh, if you... Uh, are watching on our webpage and you don't see the video, try to uh, uh, refresh your browser and you should get it there. I, I don't know. You probably can't even hear me telling hear that. you that. <laughs> that's right. Yep. Okay. But anyway, uh, that's where we are. I think we're good. I think we're good. I think we're live everywhere. All right. And uh, let's uh, get started then. You, and, All right. Uh, yep. Yeah, so, uh, as I said in our brief little intro, we get questions fairly often from people. Most of them submitted by emails, questions at collegeview.com. 
And it may be that a, that a suggestion or a question could be something we could make a whole program out of, and we've done that in the past, but more often than not, the questions, we kind of combine them together and, and put together a sort of a smorgasbord program where we deal with several unrelated questions. We're going to do that tonight. We've yep. got four questions, but we encourage those sort of things. If you have questions or comments, send them to us at college, uh, questions at collegeview.com. And uh, we will very often we'll try to get that right into a, an upcoming program. These programs are short attention span friendly because we go fast and we've changed the subject and the topic quickly as we look at various questions. All right. So the yeah. first one tonight. All right. Well, be, uh, before we get to it, I remind you that we send out an update on our Facebook page and we send it out by email uh, every week uh, on Thursday morning telling what our subject is going to be. You can get on our email update list. Send us, again, uh, an email to questions at collegeview.com. Say, add me to the list. Or check earlier in the day on Thursday before the program, anytime during the day on Thursday, you can see what our topic is going to be. Okay. So today we sent out these questions. We're just going to deal with them one at a time. This first one, it comes from Randy in Colorado. Hey, Randy. And he says, most New Testament churches hold that baptism and the Lord's Supper are two sacraments of the church to be practiced. Are these sacraments required to be administered in the local church or under the supervision of the local church? Are they best administered under the authority of the local church? In other words, could a Bible study group observe the Lord's Supper? Could an individual baptize someone who came to Christ under his teaching and then report it to the local church? Yep. I think that last part especially is interesting, and we've had some questions about this. In fact... Um, I got a contact, I made, made contact, sort of a roundabout contact with our friend Nestor Sanchez down in, in uh, Chile. And he uh, is, is working with some people and some of the preaching work he does who've taken a position that if in order for your baptism to be valid, you have to be baptized by a recognized minister uh, within the church. Uh, and so some people are, are very quite adamant about that, that, that your baptism is not right if, if the person who baptized you was not qualified to do it. And that kind of is in the tone of this question that comes to us about the so-called sacraments yeah. of baptism uh, and the Lord's Supper. I want to just say right up front, I don't find in the scriptures that it teaches any necessary requirement or condition for the person who does the baptizing. Yeah. Uh, my main argument about that would be if my, no, so you baptized me, Jacob, and you present yourself as being a, a faithful Christian yourself. Uh, maybe you are recognized as a preacher within a local congregation or something of that nature. It come, come to find out that you're actually a charlatan, that you lied about the whole thing. That you're not a faithful Christian, that you're living a horrible life, and that you're a, 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 a pretentious person who's come in just taking advantage of, of, of a situation. You're an imposter. So I'm going to go to hell because you baptized me, and, and I didn't even know it. I was completely unaware of the realities of your particular situation. But, but God is going to send me to hell because unknowingly I was baptized by a person who didn't tell the truth. That's just a completely unworkable situation, and and I'm I'm confident that God, in His wisdom, would never enact a plan like that. It's completely unmanageable. There would be no way to police that sort of a situation. 
be sort of a, a variant of the Catholics' apostolic succession because you'd have to have a link all the way back to the apostles, so maybe believer's succession or something. You'd have to have an uninterrupted yeah. chain all the way back to the apostles. So, that is to be the so I'm baptized by you, but you've got to be baptized right to be right. So you've got to make sure the guy who baptized you was right, and he's got to make sure the guy who baptized him was right. And as you say, you would actually have to be able to draw an unbroken chain all the way back to the inspired apostles in the first century, because if there's any gap in that succession, then everybody thereafter fails. And that's a pragmatic explanation and answer to the question. But just uh, from what the scriptures teach, there's no stipulation placed. I could I could easily make the claim you have to be baptized by someone with red hair or your baptism is not valid. I have as much sure grounds to make that claim as someone would would have to, with the idea that you have to be baptized by certain, some certain individual. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul was dealing with some problems that existed in the church at Corinth. And one of the problems was that they had this sectarian idea. They were breaking up into various parties. And some were calling themselves after Peter and some after Apollos. And some were calling themselves after Paul. And Paul didn't want any part of that. In response to that problem that was going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul said, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. Uh, and I baptized also the house of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, that passage has been misused badly by some who want to deny the necessity of baptism. They missed the whole point. But the point that Paul is basically making there is it doesn't matter who baptized you. We're, you're not following men anyway. You're following Christ. But Paul basically implies strongly in that context that the person who baptized you is not significant. Yeah, it goes on in verse 7, so then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters. But in God chapter who, 3, yeah. It gives the increase in chapter 3, verse 7. So, um, I mean, that's a little bit of a stretch there probably for the application. But again, it's, it, the focus is not on the one who's doing the teaching or the one who's doing the baptizing. Yeah. Okay. Now, in the question from Colorado, the, the word sacrament is used, and sometimes we hear about sacraments. That's not a New Testament word. We don't read about sacraments of the church. But many denominations hold that baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacraments of the church. I, uh, the, the word is interesting. Uh, in the Greek, the, the Bible, the New Testament speaks of certain mysteries that were revealed. And, and when they were translating the Greek into Latin, there really wasn't a good word to use. Uh, but basically, the Greek suggested a mystery revealed is, is what's happened through the gospel. Uh, and, and so, when they were translating the Greek into Latin, the, the Roman army actually had a practice that if you, when you enlisted in the Roman army, you took an oath, uh, and then they actually tattooed the name of your, or the number of your regiment on the back of your ear. On the back of your ear. Yeah. And that process, taking wow. an oath and then making this sign of a tattoo was, was the Latin word from which comes sacrament. And so they chose that word. They could have, they could have, uh, uh, sort of transliterated the word for mystery, but they didn't. They chose the, 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 the word sacrament. And the idea was that baptism and the Holy Spirit are sort of an outward sign of an inward commitment to Christ. And that's the notion behind the word sacrament. But, uh, it's not a New Testament word. And 
And the idea that that these special activities can only be administered uh, by certain authorized individuals is just not in the scriptures. All right. And uh, the questioner goes on and asks about the Lord's Supper. Now, that is a, uh, so what, well, I guess to summarize, could an individual baptize someone who came into Christ under his teaching and then report it to the local church? He, he, yes, he could baptize them. And no, he wouldn't have to report that to anybody. Well, I, yeah, I guess we look at Philip and the eunuch. For exactly. That. Acts chapter 8. When Philip baptized the eunuch, there's no indication that, that he went back to some church somewhere and, and gave a, a reporting of that. Simply a man learned the truth, had faith, and was obedient. But now, you know, I, I, it depends on who's doing the reporting. Could the individual who did the baptizing report it? He wouldn't. There's no uh, instruction on that. But the person who was baptized would report on it. You know, Paul, uh, when he was baptized, uh, joined the, the brethren uh, uh, in Antioch. So the person who baptized should give a report of it. Was baptized should give a report of it so that he can join that uh, the body of believers in that area. Yeah. As Paul did. Exactly right. When Paul yeah. went back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 9, he says he essayed to join himself to the believers. And so, you know, he made an effort to identify himself as one who had been baptized and who was uh, a faithful Christian. And, and that's certainly appropriate. But, you know, there's the Bible requirement of reporting to any specific local congregation. We just don't read of that. Okay. But now men have been glad to add things uh, to the Scripture, and, and that sort of thing has probably been added. But again, in regards to baptism, yes, anybody could baptize. And would they have to report it to the church? Well, I, I, I don't know the circumstances, but I wouldn't say that there's any specific requirement of reporting. Now, the question... Hang on just a minute, Jake. We've got a, we got a comment in the in on our Facebook page from Kevin. He said, an inference might be that a Christian is the one doing the baptizing. It would be a bit pointless for the baptizer otherwise, no charge for the one being baptized. I think I think it is true that in every instance that we know of baptism, the baptizer was a Christian, which I think logically makes sense. But I'd be willing, I'd be willing to go out on a limb and say that if you and me, Josh, were shipwrecked on a desert island, neither one of us Christians, and the only yeah. the only thing that washed up on there with us was a Bible, and we we spent our time because we didn't have anything else to do. We spent our time reading that Bible. We found out that we needed to be baptized for remission of sins. We ain't, we haven't got any Christians yeah. here, and so I might baptize you. And then you're a Christian, but I wasn't when I baptized. But then you turn around, baptized. That's a crazy hypothetical. And the fact of the matter is. That sort of thing never going to happen, and so we really don't even have to argue that where it could happen or not. It's, it's not an it's not a necessary thing to even know what you would do in a situation like that. The fact of the matter is, typically, I can't even imagine a situation other than a Christian being the one who does the baptizing. Although even at that, I don't but, know that the Bible places that requirement. But he later found out that this guy was it was just a hoax. That he really he later came out and said, "Well, I never really was a Christian." Then you wouldn't have to worry about your salvation. Uh, yeah. is what you're saying. Well, you know, I was baptized by a man. I don't know anything about his faithfulness at the time that he baptized me. Right. That was years ago. I don't. I think I don't even know if that man is still alive. I don't know anything about him uh, in recent years. I mean, probably for the last forty or fifty years, I've never even known anything <laughs> about him. Uh, is my salvation contingent on whether that guy was legitimate? I just don't believe it's so. The first person who bab- the first person baptized on the day of Pentecost was almost certainly baptized by someone who was not as well. 
That's from a guy named Jacob in the chat room. So, yeah, yeah, good. Welcome, good. Jacob. Hey, and um, well, that goes on. His, the questioner, we're about out of time here for this segment, but the questioner says, are these uh, sacraments required to be administered in the local church under the supervision of the local church? Again, Philip and Eunuch, uh, not. Are they best administered under the authority of the local church? In other words, could a Bible study observe the Lord's Supper? Now, this is a horse of a different color. This is a little different because I think that the Lord's Supper is designed to be taken together uh, in a body of believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, Paul spoke of the Corinthian church coming together into one place to take the Lord's Supper, to yeah. eat the Lord's Supper. Right. Uh, and then also... Uh, he suggests that it is a communion uh, of the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, the disciples were coming together on the first day of the week. They weren't just for taking it in their homes or in their small group studies. The disciples were coming together on the first day of the week. Yeah. So th- I think it's a little different, but when does, a, when does a group constitute a congregation of believers? When does a church, when does a, when do, in other words, if you and me and Josh move to Outer Timbuktu, and the first Sunday we come together, are we a congregation or are we not? Can we take the Lord's Supper or can we not? Uh, I think a lot of that would have to do with intention. If our intention is to be a recognized body of believers, then I think certainly we can and should observe the Lord's Supper. If we're just a bunch of guys on a fishing trip, Maybe not. So, you know, I think it's, it's, I think that's the question. And I guess 1961 says, why talk about reporting? Why or for what reason would a person keep it a secret? Would both the baptizer and the baptized be part of a congregation? Well, again, we're not saying you'd keep it secret. We're just saying there's not any necessary command on what the reporting process would be. You, yeah, yeah, certainly you'd want to share that. Sure, and, uh, sure, sure. We're not saying, yeah, we, we're and, not and saying. And if you, you're going to join yourself to a body of believers, you would, they'd want to know where you baptized. So certainly you'd want to tell that, but talking about any kind of like necessary reporting hierarchy or something like that, we're yeah. saying there's not. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where would you go in the Bible to say within six weeks of your baptism you must report this to the elders of a congregation within 50 mile radius of your baptism where would you come up with those kind of regs they're just not there that's all we're saying but we're not saying you keep secrets we're just saying right there's no specification about reporting josh yeah i was just going to say i think i think the idea behind the guy i think the idea behind the guy that asked the question was like if you don't report it it's not legitimate you know yeah so and that's that's not the case at all. Philip yeah. and the Ethiopian unit we already talked about. It was legitimate. He didn't. I mean, he's going to tell people, I'm a Christian, that, but he didn't have to tell somebody to make it a legitimate. But in some thing. denominations, there probably are some reporting. Yeah. yeah you yeah. report it up to the diocese, or you got to report it to central headquarters within a certain yeah. amount of time, and then we'll send out a certificate that makes it valid and so forth. Yeah. Lots of stuff you don't read about in the scriptures. Right. I think okay. that's right. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we get back, uh, we'll get into the next question. It is about uh, refugees. Wow. We better get a break, and when we get back, we'll take a Bible study continues right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready also to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. 
Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the Virtual Bible Study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the Virtual Bible Study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. Here's some quotes worth pondering. The longer you carry a grudge, the heavier it becomes. The child's first school is the family. You are not the first to have happened to you whatever it is that is happening. It takes a great man to be a good listener. The one who pulls the oars doesn't have time to rock the boat. He that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. Man, wish I'd said that. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. We're back on the program tonight as we look at various listener questions, and we're taking your comments, uh, questions at collegeview.com, or in the chat room tonight. Thanks for signing in, and uh, thanks for sharing your comments with us. Okay, this next question we want to deal with has to do with refugees, and actually this was submitted in the form of an article that was in a publication that I don't know anything about called The Conversation. Mm. And the, the submitted article uh, says the Bible has a very clear message about refugees. We should accept them. And this was written by a guy named Matthew Schmaltz, uh, associate professor at the College of the Holy Cross. Uh-huh. And it's The Conversation. The Conversation. Not A Conversation. Yeah. The Conversation. And and so uh, he, he starts out the article, we're not going to read all of this, but he starts out the article by simply talking about President Trump's recent orders about uh, limiting immigration from okay. various places okay. on, on the planet Earth. And he says, the Bible affirms strongly and unequivocally the obligation to treat strangers with dignity and hospitality. He references the book of Deuteronomy. He says the book of Deuteronomy sets out the requirement that a portion of produce be set aside by farmers every third year for strangers, widows, and orphans. Jewish people were exhorted to not oppress the sojourner. The Israelites themselves were strangers during their enslavement in Egypt and captivity in Babylon. The Hebrew Bible recognizes that every one of us can be a stranger, and for that very reason, we need to overcome our fear of those who live amongst us whom we do not know. Uh, he references Jesus in Matthew 25, beginning verse 31, uh, where he's speaking of the final judgment, when the righteous will be granted paradise and unrepentant sinners will be consigned to eternal fire. Christ says to those at his right hand that they are blessed because, quote, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. So that's the gist of this article about refugees. Um, what do you think? Well, I, I think uh, Kent does a good job with it in his, from Calhoun, Georgia. We missed him on the first question. We'll come back and get his first answer. But it, to this question, he says, the New Testament does not directly address the situation regarding refugees as it relates to our society today. However, there are New Testament principles that indicate Christians and all accountable individuals need to react to others in the same manner wish, uh, with which we uh, wish them to react to us. Also, there exists a divine requirement that all individuals obey all civil laws that do not conflict with God, the laws of God. So we certainly as individuals need to be uh, concerned with those who have needs. Well, I think this is true. The, 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 I think what the, this article does, though, is unfortunately blends national political policy with individual Christian responsibility. Don't you think, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. I think when Jesus was, the the verses that you quoted, I think he was talking to the individual. A person was hungry and you helped feed them. They were naked and you helped clothe them. You you helped an individual. I don't think he was talking about 
refugees from another country. You, as yeah. a country, took refugees from another country. And, and I'm not even sure you can go back to the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the law of Moses was the civil law of the nation of Israel. And so, so I'm not even sure you can draw a direct connection there, although... Throughout the Bible, I would quickly acknowledge that God instructs his people to be a benevolently minded people. We should be benevolent people. There's no doubt about that. But one of the problems with the idea is that the only solution to the problem of refugees is to accept them into our country when we know that it's actually causing problems in many instances rather than solving problems. Actually, the people who are promoting this are presenting what I would identify as a false dilemma, that either the refugees are going to starve and die or they'll be taken into our country. Those are not the only two alternatives. Uh, there are, there's a whole spectrum of alternatives of how, refu- how the jet refugee problem can be addressed. Uh, right now, the, the, of course, the hotbed of refugee issues comes out of Syria where they've had a seven or eight year long civil war and millions of refugees have resulted uh, and they have flooded Europe, causing all kinds of problems in Europe. Many have come to the United States, and, and we, we hear about problems caused by some of the refugees who have come to the United States. President Trump has suggested, for instance, that instead of taking them out of their country, why don't we make safe zones for them and guard them, protect them within their own country until this civil war can be settled, and then they'll be in their countries where they'll be home, where they belong, where they want to be. And so I'm just I'm not taking a political stand on that. I'm just saying there are other alternatives. As an individual, I'm supposed to be benevolent. And when uh, 10 as it says, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. That's my duty as a Christian. Yeah. And so as I have opportunity, I should be benevolently assisting those that I can. But I'm not sure that the, the Bible speaks to a political policy for our nation. In, re, in fact, I, I would deny that it does. I do not think the New Testament sets forth a political necessity on refugees for nations. And so we'll leave it at that. Uh, yeah. We won't get into the politics one way or the other, but uh, as individuals, we certainly need to have a benevolent heart. I, I don't think that we'd probably dwell on that nearly enough. The Bible speaks about it a lot. That very text that the, the author, Matthew Smaltz, identifies from Matthew chapter 25 speaks to us as individual disciples of the Lord, that when we see situations where we can be of an assistance, God expects us to be of assistance. We're to do unto others as we'd have them do unto us. Uh, Matthew 7, verse 12. And so there's just plenty of teaching that would encourage us as individuals to be open-hearted, to be benevolently minded, to be caring people. I don't think we stress that enough. I don't think we do that enough. Uh, so all of those points being granted, but I don't know that that goes to this question of refugees. All right. But uh, again, we don't want to take any focus away from the fact that we need to be benevolent. You reference Galatians 6, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. And uh, there are opportunities uh, that abound yeah. uh, for that, and we need to be looking for those, and we need to be a benevolent people. Um, and, uh, Josh, any comments on that? No, thank you. Thank you guys hit the nail on the head. I mean, uh, it is a serious thing because, I mean, Jesus talked about that, when he was talking about the judgment, and so in, as individuals, we've got to be, we've got to be benevolently minded. Yeah, but that's it. Yeah, I that's think it. you're right.
before we go to our break, Jacob, let me back up. We uh, Kent had an email a comment on our first question about the so-called sacraments of baptism and and the uh, Lord's Supper, and we we didn't get to that when we were talking about that. So everybody who's been listening, just hold place. Back up to our first question, yep, real quick, and let me give you Kent's answer to that first it's a good, question. It's a good answer. We need to get it. He says the term sacrament is an unscriptural term that does not properly apply to either baptism or the Lord's Supper. The proper terminology regarding both baptism and the Lord's Supper are that they are term that, that they are termed ordinances or commands. Neither are ordinances of the church of God that are to be practiced by the authority of Christ. Baptism is an ordinance or a command that is a condition of salvation for the alien sinner. He references several scriptures. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of God given to the church. Such is to be observed on the first day of the week within the worship assembly. Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 23. Such being the case, there is no New Testament authority to observe the Lord's Supper in a Bible study group or class arrangement. When a believer in Christ repents of sin, confesses Christ, and is baptized for or unto the remission of sins, there is no New Testament requirement limiting such to an assembly of the local church or the place where such a local church meets. However, such needs to be reported to the local church, especially if the one being baptized desires to be identified with that particular group. Okay. And I think that would be true about the reporting. If I'm going to, as Paul did in Acts 9, if I'm going to go to a congregation and want to identify myself with that congregation, I'm going to have to report that, yes, I'm, I'm a baptized believer. Yeah. Uh, instead of, uh, I'm an atheist or an agnostic, but I'd like to be a member of your church. Well, yeah, we can't, we can, we're not going to allow that. So, all right. Uh, we'll get a break and we'll get this week's bullet point. Ken, thank you for your good answers tonight. And, uh, we'll get a, this week's bullet point when we come back. The next question is on the subject of, well, kids, an unfortunate situation where a child might not die. A, a four-year, it, it's going to talk, we'll, we'll read it thoroughly here in a minute, but it talks about a four-year-old child dying and he gets to go to heaven and a child who lives older might not go to heaven and that maybe isn't even fair. It's not fair. Well, what, how do we deal with that? Maybe your your position on this, uh, this idea might be in error because that doesn't seem fair to me. We'll get it on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study will continue right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. In writing about the qualification of deacons, Paul said that they ought to, quote, first be proved, 1 Timothy 3, verse 10. His point is obvious. Before a man should be appointed to serve in this special office in the church, he should have demonstrated his faithfulness, his zeal, and his commitment to serve the Lord. The church does not need someone who has to be specially recognized before he does any work. It needs to be a man who's already working and who will continue to work whether he receives any recognition or not. While Paul was specifically speaking about deacons in the text cited, there are some things implied that have application to all Christians. First, you should realize that you are currently establishing a reputation. Others in the congregation are viewing your work and service. They are developing an opinion of you. As they think of you, they will see you as either a steady worker or as a mere spectator in the work of the church. Which will it be? Secondly, if it's right to hold potential deacons up to this kind of scrutiny, why would it not also be proper to use the same approach regarding folks who might be selected for other roles in the church? Preachers, Bible class teachers, those who serve in the public worship, and so forth. All need to, quote, first be proved. And finally, while some will complain about this kind of judging, it is clear that the Lord expects us to do it. Read John 7, verse 24. If you want to serve, then you must be willing to, quote, first be proved. And so, Christian, how are you doing? As your brothers and sisters look to you, do they see someone who is proving himself as a faithful disciple? Such evaluations are taking place continually. 
How do you rate? That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hi, Mommy. Hi, Trude. Um, this is the virtual Bible study. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. We're back on the program tonight, and we do remind you this program is brought to you by the College U Church of Christ. And if you've never been to our website, it is thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We encourage you to go there and find out more about us, where we meet, when we meet, and uh, some of our beliefs and practices. Uh, find out more at thevirtualbiblestudy.com or... There's an easier way to find out what we believe in practice. Uh, open the Bible. We're trying to do just that. As our guide, we don't have a creed. We don't have any human organizations. We're just going by the Bible. We want to be a church and a people just like the people in churches that you read about in the New Testament. And so we use it as our sole guide. And uh, if you're interested in doing the same, we encourage you to come and find out more about us. Come and visit us at the College View Church of Christ. We're talking about uh, various listener questions on the program tonight. We've talked about refugees and uh, sacraments, if you will. Use a, a human term there for the Lord's Supper and baptism. And now on to question number three. Which comes to us from Al in Canada. Canada. Hey. Most preachers, he says, in the church believe that when a four-year-old child dies, they enter heaven. Thousands of four-year-old children die every year. Now, I'm going to skip over a point we need to make here. We don't believe that the dead go to heaven directly. We believe that the dead go to the Hadean realm, the realm of departed spirits, we've, to await the final judgment. We've talked about that. Look at our archives at thevirtualbiblestudy.com. So we're not... We're, but, I mean, but, there, there's so a point They, they will go to heaven, yes. Yeah, yeah okay. Not, maybe, not the, the time frame may be different, but yes, they right. will go to heaven. So he says, now he says, those same preachers who say the four-year-old child would be saved and go to heaven... Those same preachers also believe that had all those children lived a longer, full life, on average, few would have chosen to be baptized into Christ. Therefore, on Judgment Day, the ones who did not die young could argue that those who did die young are only and unjustly in heaven due to their early death. Please tell how you reconcile this doctrinal strangeness. He says it's doctrinal strangeness. Okay, well, thank you for the question tonight. The first thing that uh, that makes um, me have a little bit of hesitation here is when you start talking about salvation and you bring up the idea of fairness, those are incompatible uh, concepts. Uh, there's nothing fair about salvation. None of us, anybody who gets to heaven can't say, well, it's fair and I, and I deserve it. Yeah, when he, when he put the term unjustly, well, you know, God's going to be the one to determine and, and make uh, the call on justness and fairness. God is just, and so none of us, like you said, none of us deserve to be able to go to heaven. But He's made a way possible for us to go. But He, this guy's got, uh, he's trying to make a make an argument that doesn't really work. Okay, I got an email here from Monty here in Columbia. He says if they're in heaven, it's not unjust. God is a just God. Uh, in other words, he said. It, in other words, he's saying it doesn't seem fair or just. It would be unjust for them to be in heaven. No, if they're in heaven, it's just because God did it and God is a just God. Uh, Monty says, I don't believe there will be any arguments on Judgment Day. All right. I think that's, I think that's right, Monty. Okay. I agree. All right. Now, um, let's, let's argue this from the other way then. So the other alternative is that the four-year-olds go to hell, right? That's the only other alternative. 
So he's saying it's kind of unfair that a four-year-old would go to heaven, whereas if they lived longer, they might not have gone to heaven because they would have been disobedient. So what would be the, uh, the other side of the coin? The other alternative is that the four-year-old who dies goes to hell. Goes straight to hell without a chance to be obedient. Yeah. So how's that fair or just? But, How would a just God send a four-year-old who never had a chance to learn and make it a conscious decision to be obedient? How how would that be a just God? That seems to be one of those difficult doctrines uh, to to accept. No, I think what our what our emailer probably is the where he's coming from probably is he's trying to defend the idea of inherited depravity. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, I, I would think that that'd be the only reason to be making this argument. And he's saying it, it, it's not fair that a, four year, a four-year-old who dies would go to heaven, but if he lived longer, he wouldn't go to heaven. Uh, and so, uh, in other words, I think he's su- suggesting the idea of, of inherited depravity. We got a phone call to you? Uh, no, we're good, Josh? No. Okay, we're late. no call there. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, so... Um, I've kind of lost my place, Dave. Hey, Josh, so no phone call there, right? That that, that we're, the listener's going to catch us on the on the internet, huh? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, it was Monty, so he he heard you he heard you reading his comment as he calls. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. okay. So okay. he got hey, Monty. yeah, okay, say the same you. thing you just read. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, uh, the four year old who dies either goes to heaven or hell. Now Catholics had a little problem with that idea of, of them going to hell. They wanted to believe in inherited sin. So the four the, the child who dies they go to limbo. In the in the Catholic uh, idea of things, which you can't read about limbo, they actually Bible. call it limbo. Limbo, I know. Right. They actually call it's it. It's not. It's not a roller skating game. That's uh, actually what they call it. And um, so, um, if we're going to take a position on inherited sin and what happens to the four year old child, it's not going to be done on basis of emotional arguments like this. It has to be done based upon what the scriptures teach. Yeah, and the scriptures clearly teach that children are innocent. I, I, I just, uh, it, it seems so plain. Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 19, verse 14, uh, Jesus said, Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Of such. The kingdom is made up of such as these. Now, if, if they are morally corrupt, uh, depraved even. And can't do anything that's good. In, is incapable the of doing good. How could it be that we should become like them and that the kingdom is made up of such as they are? That doesn't make sense. Uh, the scriptures teach that we do not inherit the sins of our fathers, uh, not our immediate ancestors, not our ancestors dating all the way back to Adam. We do not inherit sin. All right. Uh, in the chat room, guest 5962 says he seems to be saying that it's unfair to let an adult not go to heaven if the adult would have gone to heaven when at the age of four. Again, fairness doesn't come into the equation. Uh, and... Well, what about the idea? It's unfair to let the adult not go to heaven. If he would have gone to heaven at age four, what about the murderer? At age four, he would have gone to heaven, but he grew up to be a serial killer. At the age of 18. But at age 17, had he gotten run over by the school bus, he would have gone to heaven. Doesn't seem fair. I mean, if you're going to start with hypotheticals, where are you going to stop? Yeah. Dave, you were telling about a preacher, you heard uh, a Calvinistic preacher who said that if he believed that children were innocent, but they grew 
grew up to become accountable that his argument was what you ought to do is just kill all your children. Yeah, he said that if I believe like you, I'd go home and kill all my kids before they had an opportunity to go astray. Yeah. Uh, again, it's a hypothetical. It doesn't make any sense. You can argue that from the other side of things. If I if I believed in inherited depravity, I'd lock my kids in a padded room and keep all sharp, sharp objects away from them and... And uh, you know, I put them in a bubble where they couldn't get any infections, and uh, it just—I mean, it's hypothetical. Because, because, because you think about it, if they're born depraved and, and morally corrupt, you've got to get them to an age. You've got to get them to uh, to an age old enough to be able to talk, to be taught and respond to, to the gospel call. If they die before that happens, no luck, out of luck. So, I mean, however you want to argue it, it just doesn't make sense. The scriptures teach the innocence of children. It teaches that when we become of an age to be accountable to God, we make our choice. And our eternal destiny will be determined based upon our choice individually to whether to accept or reject God. Lots of danger when you start making the hypothetical arguments without the scriptures. Uh, Josh, your comments. Yeah, I think think you guys are right. Um, So, you know, saying the best thing to happen to a child is not to grow up because... You know, I mean, uh, the, the guy's got things backwards. So I think I think Greg's absolutely right. An adult has the ability to listen to the gospel and obey it, where a child does not, and a child isn't born in sin. So, as far as being being just, we've all, uh, because of the grace of God, got the opportunity to make it to heaven. Uh, guess 1961 says, if they are innocent and righteous, how do sinful parents instruct and teach them? The sinful teaching the righteous. Well, that is a problem that we have is that parents aren't perfect and kids watch their parents and learn bad things from their parents. Um, but again, doesn't change the fact the scriptures teach that they're innocent. I guess 59, 56, 92 says God is patient that all would and will come to him. Not sure where this passage is. Jacob in the chat room suggests Second Peter 3 verse 9, which is the passage I believe uh, 59.62 is yeah, looking God, for. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's right. How can a four-year-old come to repentance if or they can't? Well, um, they don't need to. That's, that's the point. Right. Okay, right, right. Right, okay. Um, you know, um, okay, uh, the, these um, these hypotheticals, again, don't, uh, don't prove anything. Um, uh, they're emotional, and certainly um, the... Um, the listener would like us to maybe use our emotion to make an, a decision, but that may not be the decision the scriptures would teach. Did you get Kent's answer yet? I've lost his email here somewhere. Oh, well, I have it. Uh, Kent says, the statement addressed in point number three does not indicate any type of valid reasoning. As a matter of fact, the cases in point are not parallel at all. Where there is no accountability in unaccountable individuals, there exists no divine obligation to God. When an individual attains a state of accountability, that individual becomes obligated to God due to the responsibility that they have attained. There is no strangeness in accepting what the New Testament teaches regarding personal accountability. Such is based upon the attributes of God's righteousness and justice. All right. Now, I mean, okay, let's go ahead. I got a couple of comments on our Facebook page. Sandra here in Columbia says a four-year-old is unable to understand the consequences of sin, so he would be unable to obey the gospel. He is not... He is not a free moral agent. In other words, he's not accountable. I think is the point that she's making. And he'll be when he when he is accountable, he he'll he'll become a free moral agent. Kevin in the chat room says, "Fairness is a very different proposition than justice. God renders His judgment, which may not look fair to a man's rationale." 
All right. Guest 1961 says, parents train up a child in the way he should go. The adult teaches the young righteousness. So I guess 1961 is getting to the idea, well, why do you have to train up a child if they're already born righteous? How would you answer that question, Josh? If, so if, if your baby is born sinless, why do you need to teach them? Well, you wouldn't. Because well, well you do you do well, need to teach well, well, because I mean, they're going to grow up and and then have to make that choice right because right. if they're not trained they'll choose wrong right right I think that's the point right yeah. okay all right uh, let's get a break when we get back we'll take the last question tonight and that is a question about situation ethics this is a response to a program that we had not too long ago a listener who disagrees with us and we'll look forward to hearing his disagreements. Uh, you want to stay tuned for this. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study will continue right after this. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the virtual Bible study right after these important messages. This is Stephen Nicholson, a member of the College View Church of Christ, and I want to invite you to be a regular participant on the virtual Bible study. Your input by way of emails and phone calls are always welcome during the live program. We're also open to your suggestions about possible topics for discussion on upcoming editions of the program. We'd love to hear from you anytime. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. About half of U.S. adults have looked for a new religious congregation at some point in their lives. As they were searching, 85% said they attended services at the congregation they were considering. 69% spoke to members of that congregation. 68% talked to friends about the church. 55% talked to the church leadership. 37% looked for information online. 19% made a call to the congregation. That information is via the Pew Research Center. The Word of God says in 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians three seventeen. Now, back to the program. Back on the program. Go to the top of the hour. One more question to go from our listeners, and uh, that will then, then pave the way for you to send in your questions for another edition. All right, so we got this question from uh, uh, here in Tennessee, a follow-up to a, a whole program we did on situation ethics. Uh, and the, the emailer says, I wonder if your application is as consistent as it sounds. Now, that has to do with our previous program where we absolutely rejected the whole idea of situation ethics. In other words, the idea that the circumstance you're in determines what's right or wrong. We, yeah. we completely disagree with that whole idea of situation ethics. But he says, I wonder if your application is as consistent as it sounds. For example, if a loved one was in the car with you and was experiencing a medical emergency, would you obey all traffic laws and stop at all stop signs and signals en route to the hospital? The good you'd be doing is attempting to save the life of a loved one. But the evil would be not submitting to government, which we are told to do. Thoughts. And if that's a justification you can make, can you show in Scripture how something like that is okay, but going farther is not? Okay. Uh, and he, he responded with some more clarification. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about this question here first. And then he got a follow-up email after he saw that we were going to talk about his, his uh, topic here. He sent in another email. Uh, first of all, I think we've said this already on the program tonight. We have to be careful about arguing positions from hypothetical cases. Right. Because hypothetical cases, well, there's no end to hypotheticals that you could draw up. And what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about that? You, all we know to teach is the the 
revealed word of God. And I think we have to rest upon that. Uh, you know, I, I can't say, I, I don't have authority to say, under these circumstances, it's okay to break the law of the land. The only, the only, as we said on our program, the only, the only authority we have for breaking the law of the land is if it contradicts the law of God. But beyond that, I don't have authority to say, I think under this circumstance, it'd be okay to break the law. Someone says, well, I've got another circumstance. I think I can break the law. And pretty soon we have a list of circumstances longer than your arm where people think they can break the law. Where's the justification for that? I don't have that in the Bible. I can't. And so all I can teach is, the only thing I have authority to teach is submit to the law of the land. Uh, uh, Romans 13, beginning verse 1, and so forth. Now, uh, uh, let me take another command of God. Uh, Jesus said that we should love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind. I'm going to teach that. Now, now that's the ideal. But I don't always get there, you know. Uh, I, don't, I don't think any honest Christian would say that every moment of every day they've loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind 100%. Uh, that's the goal we're striving for. That, and, and that's what we've got to teach. I, I couldn't say, you know, I think 90 Ninety-five percent would be okay, you know. Love the Lord with ninety-five percent of your heart, soul, and mind. I don't have authority to teach that, and everybody would would agree that'd be crazy to try and teach something less than the standard set forth in the Word of God. And so, when we teach, when we preach, we don't have authority to mitigate the rules of God. Uh, now. Will God be merciful to me if I did speed on the way to the hospital with a dying family member? I I hope so. I but I can't legislate God's mercy, you know. Uh, but that the question is, what can we teach and what can we justify ourselves on? And we can't justify ourselves on something that's not revealed in the Word of God. Well, uh, here's Kent's uh, answer. He says, indeed, we must obey all civil laws that do not conflict with the laws of God. However, civil law makes exceptions in emergency cases, especially in saving human life, to exercise proper judgment and not regarding all traffic laws. Please consider this parallel. God's law regarding marriage is one woman for one man for life. However, God does grant one exception and one exception only. In a divorce because of the sin of fornication, God grants the innocent party the right to remarry for remarriage to another who is qualified a qualified candidate for marriage, one who's never been married, widowed, or who has put away a previous mate due to the sin of fornication. So he said there would be some allowance for some, some states. Of the do, I, I did some study on that. Some states do have specification that allows for emergency situations, and other. And in other jurisdictions, it's been demonstrated many times that in an emergency, a police officer would would wave you on, you know, without without enforcing the law. I, I don't know that that makes a difference, or whether we even need to make that argument. The fact of the matter is, the laws, the law of God says, obey the law of the land if it doesn't contradict His law, and that's what we've got to teach. That's all, that's all we're saying. We're not saying we're perfect in application. We're striving to be perfect in application, but we're not. But but the question is, can I come up with some methodology whereby I can teach less than that? And I don't think we can. Uh, you know, I, I just uh, th- that's my point on you know this the the argument of situation ethics is to try to come up with a way to legislate an ability 
to break the law of God, and and that's where or I to think justify the, the to law, justify ju- breaking the law is justified. Yeah, Jeff in the chat room says, "Well, it would be difficult. Uh, we should still obey the traffic laws, even if trying to save your time, you make the take make the risk of others needing emergency medical attention going uh, much more as the risk of crashing yourself is higher." Fifty nine sixty two says Jesus had to deal with this with the Pharisees healing and forgiving sins on the Sabbath. They ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Well, but Jesus was dealing there primarily not with the law of Moses, but with their additions to the law of Moses, their human traditions, the traditions of the elders. Uh, they had they had enforced additional rules about the Sabbath, even how far you could travel on the Sabbath and all of that sort of. Thing. They were enforcing their own amendments to the law, and that Jesus often contradicted them about that because they didn't have any authority to do that either. You can't add to or take from the Word of God. Um, I got a follow up email from this same emailer here in Tennessee, and uh, he says. Uh, Jesus told his disciples to pick grain to eat on the Sabbath, but the Pharisees said they were being unlawful. The law they were breaking was actually just rabbinical tradition, but Jesus understood the principle of resting on the Sabbath. So while he broke, in quotation marks, the particular of the law, and a particular that was not from God but from men, he upheld the meaning of the law. Well, I don't think you can prove anything by the argument of them allowing or instructing his disciples to break the rabbinical traditions. Those were not the law of God. We can't draw any conclusion from that. Uh, and so that, I don't think that would prove whether we can break the law of God. That wasn't the law of God. He references David and his men who ate the consecrated bread in first Samuel chapter 21. Jesus said plainly that what David did was not lawful. And he was basically, uh, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was basically showing the hypocrisy of the Jews in that they justified David in, in, in a clear violation of the law and criticized his disciples when his disciples had not done anything sinful. Notice in particular uh, that he said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 4, that David did that was, which was not lawful for him. And then down in verse 7, he said, uh, you should not have condemned the guiltless. David was did that which was unlawful. Jesus' own disciples were guiltless. But they uh, had no problem with David, and they were trying to find a beef with the... And that's all, that they, that's all Jesus is showing there is the hypocrisy of these people. And But he wasn't justifying what David did. He said what David did was unlawful. Uh, Jesus worked on the Sabbath... If you want to call healing people work, that's what the Pharisees did. But that was a, a, a question of their own traditions, not the stated law of God. Uh, Jesus denied the Jewish leaders their right to stone a woman caught in adultery in John 8. No, he didn't. He just said, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. He was, again, drawing out their hypocrisy. We've talked about that episode before. In John chapter 8, when they brought the woman taken in adultery, caught in the very act, they said, well, there was clearly something wrong here this instance. If she was caught in the very act, where was the man who was in the act with her? Why didn't they, where, where's he? This seemed to be, this, this was a setup deal trying to trap Jesus. He didn't tell them they couldn't stone her. 
all he said is, well, if you if you were without sin, you cast the first stone. And they were all so guilt-ridden by that, they just turned and went away. Yeah. He didn't prevent them from doing it. He just called upon them to, and condemned no situation their ethics there. hypocrisy. Right. Rahab lied to the authorities to protect the spies in Joshua 2. I think she did. I think she clearly lied. Yep. But Rahab is not commended for her lying. She is Nor commend- her harlotry. Or her harlotry, for that matter. She, 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 was, in other words, lying was okay. Was harlotry okay in the case of Rahab? No. But in Hebrews chapter 11, Rahab is commended as a person of faith. She, she had faith. That's she, her, her lying wasn't commended. Her harlotry wasn't commended. Her faith was commended. Yeah. Lots of individuals in Hebrews chapter 11 with lots of flaws and lots of sins. Samson's in that list. Uh, others are in that list. They're not uh, presented as faultless or without sin, uh, but they're uh, commended for certain characteristics that they possess. And she's not commended for her lying uh, she's commended for the faith that she had in sending out the spies the other way. Yeah. Um, I don't think Jesus was teaching situation ethics in any of the things that he did. He was sent, in the instances that sometimes are that tried that people try to interpret that way. Jesus was more drawing out the hypocrisy of the people who were making the argument. All right. Now. Uh, what about, guess 1961 says, the midwives lied to Pharaoh to save the Hebrew, Hebrew babies. Well, you don't, we don't know that it is a lie for sure with the yeah, midwives. Yeah, if you go back to that in Exodus 1, you can't, you can't establish exactly that they did lie. They, 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 they said the, the women have their babies before we can get there. Probably did. That, uh, maybe they were taking their time getting there. No. But they, they, it's not. I don't think it's an obvious lie uh, in that case. But again, re- remember, we're talking about people who do sin, people who could, who do do wrong. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know that you can use those as justification. Anyway. 1961 says God blessed the, the, them with children because of what they did. Again, again I don't they think they could it, have drug their feet. Uh, the Israelite women could have been. Uh, they were hardworking. They could have been very fast in labor. Yeah, you never know. Um, um, Imani says, if there's no legal exception, then we should not break the law. Going back to this question, would you race to the hospital with a sick family member? To use the example of medical emergency is to put emotion into the equation. There's only, there's only right and wrong, no exceptions. Emotional attachment and or feelings do not determine right. And, and when I had a private correspondence with this same individual back after the initial program, I said, I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. I'm just saying I can't teach that it's okay to do it. And you shouldn't do it. Right. You shouldn't do it. Right. It's, it's the law of the land is the law of the land unless there, unless it's stated otherwise that in a case of an emergency, maybe, maybe it would be good for you to look up and see if in the place where you live it's okay to break the law in the case of a medical emergency, break the speed limit law or whatever. That might be nice to know. Maybe some research is good. But do not expect me to sit here and teach that it's okay when I don't have the authority to do that. Uh, the Bible says they didn't obey Pharaoh's commands, so they were there, 1961 says. Okay, we can talk about, uh, we can talk about the midwives, uh, at some other time, uh, again. Um, they, maybe they didn't obey Pharaoh's commands by, uh, but the question is, did they, yeah, but, but the question is, did they lie? And I still don't think they're, as I've studied that in Exodus 1 in the past, I don't think that you can prove unequivocally that they actually lied when they said that that the the Hebrew women gave what, what they said 
was that the Hebrew women... The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them in verse 19 of Hebrew, Exodus chapter 1. That, that, Can you there's nothing that? inherently false about that statement. Yeah. So, again, the, the idea that they... That Situation ethics justified their lying is not provable in that context. All right. And the command was, when you do the duties of midwife for the Hebrew women, see them on the birth stools. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if a daughter, then he shall, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Well, there would be a case of the law of God superseding the law of man. That's not in question. If they had a chance to kill a baby or save a baby, the Pharaoh says, kill the baby. God says, protect the life you would protect the life that's not a question the question is did they lie to pharaoh and were they were they justified in telling a lie i don't think you can prove they told a lie and they saved the male children alive that could they could have done that by just not being there uh, and they saved it and even if they were there and saved the child alive that would be allowing the law of god to supersede the evil law of pharaoh then there wouldn't be anything wrong with that okay you see what I'm saying? Right. And uh, and God could have blessed them for not killing the male children, not telling a lie, right? He doesn't have it doesn't have to be a a statement that he approved of their lie. He may just approve uh, yeah, of them. Yeah, but not again, I'm, the I'm, I'm, I'm not, lie, yeah, I'm not granting lie. that it was even a lie. All right. Okay. All right. Uh, let's uh, wrap it up for oh, we're over time. Yeah, we're over time. We Josh, gotta... how would you let that happen? You, you're supposed to interrupt us. Get the buzzer out. Let's go. <laughs> okay. All right, Josh, thanks for being here tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Dad, thank you for your time. Jacob, thanks. We'll thanks look to forward to next week. For uh, submitting questions, and uh, we may have some other comments you'd like to share. Send them in an email, or if you want to come on the program uh, maybe next week and uh, talk about it some more, we'd love to have you on the program as a guest. Uh, send us an email, questions at collegeview.com. Hope you benefit from our study and discussion of God's Word tonight. Hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life. Study his inspired word of the Bible and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.